Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 21st, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Liz Truss resigns as British Prime Minister after just 45 days. Ukraine plans rolling blackouts as more energy infrastructure is struck. New York opens a tent shelter for asylum seekers. A U.S. midterm poll shows that crucial Latino voters are cool on both parties. Arizona asks feds to probe alleged voter intimidation. An Iranian schoolgirl is allegedly beaten to death by security forces. Pakistan says it's ready to buy Russian oil. France repatriates ISIS sympathizers and their children from Syria. Australia commits to controversial military cooperation with Indonesia. And an FDA panel votes to remove a pregnancy drug from the market. In our top story today, Liz Truss resigns as prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Financial Times, NewsBud, CNN, The Guardian and The Telegraph. On Thursday, Liz Truss announced her resignation as UK Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader. Coming just 45 days after she took over the role from Boris Johnson, she is the shortest-serving Prime Minister in British history. Speaking outside Downing Street, Truss stated, quote, I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability, end quote, after touching on the cost of living crisis and her attempt to implement low-tax, high-growth economic policies. Truss confirmed that she couldn't deliver the mandate on which the Conservative Party had elected her. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King, she continued, to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Truss said she met with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the Conservative Party's backbench 1922 committee, and they agreed that a leadership election would be completed within the next week. Truss will remain as caretaker prime minister until a new leader is selected. Truss had faced mounting pressure to resign after a mini-budget announced by finance minister and chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng prompted turmoil in UK markets, ultimately triggering huge policy U-turns and Kwarteng's resignation. This theme continued on Wednesday when Home Secretary Suella Braverman and Chief Whip Wendy Morton resigned. Many Tory MPs had been calling for her to quit, saying she had abandoned her right-wing policy mandate and repopulated her cabinet with political moderates, such as Jeremy Hunt and Grant Shapps, to strengthen her position. It's not yet clear who will run to replace her. There are reports that Boris Johnson, who was ousted from the post only last month, will stand again, and that Rishi Sunak, Truss's main rival in September's leadership contest, is certain to run. Meanwhile, the opposition Labor Party has called for a general election. Okay, those are the facts that all of our sources agree on, and on this program we separate the spins out from those facts. Let's start with the right narrative spin from The Telegraph. Truss's premiership has been doomed for a while. It's a relief that by resigning power so swiftly, she has offered the Conservative Party a chance to unite around a new leader. The only way forward is for Tory MPs to stabilize around a mandate of fiscal discipline to create a clear dividing line from Labour. And the left narrative comes from The Guardian. This is a shambolic end to an even more catastrophic tenure of Conservative leadership. 
The British people have faced 12 years of Tory PMs. Now the markets are in chaos. The cost of living crisis is worsening. And as usual, it will be the poorest in society paying the price for the failures of the political classes. The UK needs a general election and a Labour government. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story. There is an 84% chance that the UK will have a Labour government before June 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Shambolic. Adjective, informal, British, chaotic, disorganized, or mismanaged. I've never heard that word before. I haven't either. But it sounds exactly like what it is, so pretty good word. Yeah, it's a nice flourish there. Way to go, Guardian. Yeah, them (laughs) using it wasn't shambolic at all. No, it was... Very bollock. Now let's round up day 239 of the fighting in Ukraine as rolling blackouts are planned throughout Ukraine and there are more strikes on the energy infrastructure. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, Ukraine Forum, and TASS. Following a fortnight of Russian strikes on Ukraine's energy infrastructure, which have driven numerous areas into darkness, Ukraine's principal energy provider, Ukrainergo, began imposing rolling blackouts across the country on Thursday. A statement from Ukrainergo's press office said, The reason for Thursday's restrictions is the lack of power in the system. They also stated that they couldn't rule out asking for the support of Ukrainians more often as the nation faces the onset of the cold weather. Ukrainian officials reported further strikes against energy infrastructure on Thursday, saying a facility in the Krivi Reed district of Dnipropetrovsk was hit. On the same day, Russia also launched strikes on other, non-energy targets in the regions of Mykolaiv and Zaporizhia. There were no reports of civilian injuries in any of the attacks at this stage. However, Ukrainian officials said 19 civilians were killed and 23 others were injured in Russian attacks from the previous day. 13 people were killed and 5 were injured in Donetsk, 3 were killed and 8 more injured in Zaporizhia, and 1 person was killed and 1 was injured in Kherson. A further four people were reported injured in Chernihiv, while officials said two ambulance operators were killed and five more were injured after their vehicle hit a mine in Kharkiv and exploded. Meanwhile, pro-Russia separatists in Donetsk said one civilian was killed and six others were injured in Ukrainian attacks over the past day. Elsewhere, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared martial law in the four recently annexed territories of Ukraine on Wednesday giving local authorities additional powers to ensure security in their regions. Six border regions of Russia, in which a medium level of response was introduced, were also granted additional powers. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on today's Ukrainian crisis. We've got two spins. The anti-Russia narrative spin is coming from Yahoo Finance. Russia's attacks on civilian infrastructure, namely on Ukrainian supplies of electricity, water, and heating, as winter approaches constitute war crimes. They must be met with a strong response from the international community. And we have a pro-Russia narrative from Newsweek. Russia's response to Ukraine's actions has so far been restrained, but Moscow has repeatedly warned that its patience is not infinite. In the wake of ongoing terror attacks, including the strike on the Crimean Bridge, Russia's tough response has been long coming. And there's a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 45% chance that Vladimir Putin will be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court before 2024, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Melissa, that ambulance 
being exploded by a mine is basically case in point for why no one should use mines, that kind of indiscriminate targeting. Right, right. That is what stood out to me, too. Just going along, doing your job, saving people's lives, and boom. Yeah. New York City opens a tent shelter for asylum seekers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, CBS, Bloomberg, The New York Times, and ABC. On Wednesday, New York City opened the Humanitarian Emergency Response and Relief Center, an emergency tent shelter that will temporarily house 500 people bussed into the city by Republican governors. The decision comes ahead of the midterm elections set to take place in early November. The policy was announced over a week after Mayor Eric Adams declared a state of emergency in the city and warned that the influx of new migrants was overwhelming New York City's shelter system. As of Saturday, more than 19,000 people had entered the accommodation system in recent months. Authorities reportedly plan to use the facilities located in Randall's Island as a way station for single male migrants while determining next steps. Solitary male migrants, many from Venezuela, have been arriving several times per week at the main Manhattan bus terminal, mostly on buses chartered from Texas. This is reportedly the first in a series of makeshift relief centers that will be built in response to the migrant crisis, with projections that the city could spend more than a billion dollars on emergency centers by the end of the fiscal year. According to officials, New York City spent $325,000 to set up the Randalls Island tent. Members of the city council have criticized the selection of the site, a windy, difficult-to-reach island. However, officials argue that more than 80 potential sites were assessed, and it was concluded that a tent camp at the location would be more comfortable than existing shelters. Randall's Island is connected to the Bronx, Manhattan, and Queens by five bridges, while New York City's subway system is a bus ride or a walk away. It's also home to the track and field Icon Stadium, a psychiatric hospital, and a fire academy for the Fire Department of New York. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Democratic narrative spin on this story from the New York Times. This new facility will help New York City to humanely receive migrants that have been arriving from the southern border, allowing them to recuperate as well as reach their relatives. Unlike southern Republican governors who are causing this crisis by coercing migrants out of their jurisdictions, Democrats like Mayor Adams are working to support and assist these vulnerable people. And there's a Republican narrative from the New York Post. Though Mayor Adams has long denied favoring migrants and has vowed not to divert resources away from New Yorkers in dire need of services, the opening of the Randalls Island shelter has clearly showed the contrary. Compared to the Spartan shelters, which house homeless New Yorkers, migrants will enjoy an accommodation wonderland that includes laundry services, three meals a day, and video games, all at the expense of the U.S. taxpayer. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 50% chance that at least 208,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. from 2021 to 2024. Looking at this, uh, the picture of the shelter here, I do kind of like how orderly all the things are set up. Do you get anything from that? Does that, does that scratch any itch for you? How is nice that, and like straightened a, it is? It's like a nice little ASMR, like a little visual kind ASMR. Kind of. I, I, I want to see everyone lay down. On their beds. <laughs> That's right, yes. And now an update on the U.S. midterm elections. Crucial Latino voters are cool on both parties. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, The Guardian, and Axios. 
Among 1,005 U.S. Hispanic and Latino individuals surveyed for an Axios Ipsos Latino poll released weeks before the November midterm elections, 33% said they'd vote Democrat, while 18% were leaning Republican. 23% said they didn't know how they would vote. 17% said they wouldn't vote. In terms of top concerns, 37% of respondents cited inflation, and 36% pointed to crime. The rest of the list in descending order of concern, immigration, climate change, health care, political extremism or polarization, taxes, racial injustice, and abortion. These results come weeks after a national NBC News and Telemundo poll showed 54% of Latino voters preferred Democrats, compared to 33% leaning Republican. That same poll gave Biden a 51% approval rating, with 45% disapproving of the job he's done. Democrats often counted on historic support from Latino voters, but former President Trump made major inroads with this demographic in 2020. Democrats have reportedly spent $54 million in ads on Spanish-language TV and radio, while Republicans have spent $19 million. Latino voters wield major power in several swing states, including Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Nationwide, Latinos have accounted for 52% of population growth over the past decade, and they now comprise almost one-fifth of the population. Cliff Young, president of Ipsos U.S. Public Affairs, provided further context on the poll by saying, Latino Americans feel relatively cool toward political parties. This makes them, in many ways, the swing voters of the 2022 election. Thank you for laying out the facts on that story, Scott. We'll start with a Democratic narrative spin, and this comes from The Daily Kos. Continuing to focus on abortion, which crosses all demographics and geographies, is a way to win with Latinos and all ethnic groups. The abortion issue shows how extreme and out of touch Republicans are on numerous issues and will be pivotal to the Democrats' messaging with Latinos in the final weeks until the midterm. Contrast that with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. Democrats can keep focusing on abortion all they want, but that focus is just one of many issues that are turning Latino voters against them. In crucial regions, Latino voters are turning to Republicans to tackle issues like crime and inflation. The Democrats' path of preaching wokeness isn't working. And there's a nerd narrative on this story, which says there's a 75 percent chance Republicans gain control of the U.S. House of Representatives after the 2022 midterm elections. That's according to the Metaculous community. In our next story, Arizona asks the feds to probe alleged voter intimidation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Washington Post, Reuters, Mediaite, and Newsbud. Following reports of a voter allegedly being followed by a group of people to an early voting ballot drop box, the Arizona Secretary of State's office has referred the alleged voter intimidation case to the offices of the U.S. Department of Justice and Arizona Attorney General. The unidentified voters' complaint stated a group were, quote, filming and photographing my wife and I as we approached the drop box and accusing us of being a mule, adding, they took photographs of our license plate. The mule accusation was a reference to the documentary 2,000 Mules by conservative pundit Dinesh D'Souza, which claims 2,000 people, so-called mules, were hired by unnamed nonprofits to conduct ballot trafficking. With early voting in Arizona underway, the alleged harassment occurred at the Mesa Juvenile Court Dropbox location, where there have been other allegations of people in the vicinity of the Dropbox who were filming. Meanwhile, conservative and QAnon-linked poll-watching group Clean Elections USA has said it's, quote, ready to go in Arizona and 17 other states, 
with its founder, Melody Jennings, saying her group has people with phone cameras to take legal videos and photos. Jennings distanced herself from the suspect in this particular case. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs' office, also the Democrat gubernatorial candidate, didn't identify the alleged harassers, nor if they were affiliated with any group, though the DOJ has confirmed that it received the referral from Arizona. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have four wildly divergent narratives on this story. The Democratic narrative comes from Huffington Post. Intimidation tactics like this are the work of dangerous groups like Clean Elections USA, whose founder has frequently appeared on election-denying Steve Bannon's show. They openly brag about spying on and following voters. This is clearly the work of dangerous MAGA Republicans in another attempt to steal an election. And the Republican narrative comes from the Center to Protect Voters and Their Voices. Though any form of illegal stalking, harassment, or voter intimidation should be condemned, there is a need for thorough ballot drop box monitoring, which is lacking in certain states. If we want every American to feel the upcoming elections are secure and legitimate, every state must do its part in implementing proper ballot surveillance. Narrative C comes from the Brennan Center for Justice. Extensive studies have demonstrated that voter fraud in the United States is extremely rare, and allegations that this occurred in the 2020 election, or will occur in the midterms, are baseless. While election integrity must absolutely be protected, chasing phantom voter fraud shouldn't be used as an excuse to undermine free and fair access to voting. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 24% chance that Republican Blake Masters will win the 2022 United States Senate election in Arizona. I was uh, going to make fun of Melody Jennings saying that they had her people were going to use their phone cameras to take videos, but... I can't. I mean, phone cameras for videos and pictures are amazing now. Isn't it incredible that that really will be? Uh, that's what I would use, I guess. My, yeah. my phone is so amazing. That's that's what someone would ask you to use because they're, they're in such good shape. Yeah, it's not, gone are the days of the flip phone with the grainy camera. Tragic news from Iran as a schoolgirl is allegedly beaten to death by security forces. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Newsbud, The Guardian, and BBC News. A schoolgirl died last week after Iranian security forces allegedly beat her and several classmates for refusing to sing an anthem praising the country's supreme leader, a local teachers' association said. Asra Panahi was among several students from the Shahed Girls High School in Ardabil, who were allegedly forced to attend a ceremony praising Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. They reportedly refused to sing, chanting slogans against inequality and discrimination instead. According to the Coordinating Council of Iranian Teachers' Trade Associations, security forces beat and arrested several students, some of whom were admitted to hospital due to their injuries. Panahi was among them and died in the hospital the following day, according to the statement. Politicians and state television have denied the account of Panahi's death. One man purporting to be the girl's uncle said she died of a heart condition, though similar interviews following the deaths of other protesters allegedly at the hands of security forces have been given in recent weeks. The alleged raid and death of Panahi sparked further protests in Iran, a country riven by five weeks of pro- a country riven by five weeks of protest following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody on September 16th. Iran's morality police detained her for allegedly not wearing her hijab correctly. 
The October 13th incident is among a series of alleged raids on schools across the country by Iranian authorities in response to schoolgirls who have joined the protest following Amini's death. There are several narrative spins on this story, and the pro-establishment narrative here comes from France 24. This is yet another death of a young girl at the hands of Iran's brutal security regime, a rotten system that has pushed the country's youth to its absolute limits. It's already fostered a volatile environment by failing to tackle the economic crisis, and repressing women through the criminalization of immodest dressing has only amplified discontent. Iranians cannot blindly comply with these orders any longer. And an establishment critical narrative comes from the Tehran Times. Iran's riots have nothing to do with the death of Amini, and now Panahi, but everything to do with the enemies of Iran exploiting the tragic event for the purpose of creating chaos in the country. This was simply the right excuse at the right time. However, Iranians can count on their government to remain firm in its opposition to meddling from Western hegemony and Israel's Zionist regime. Riv, verb, and then its past participle riven, Literary, to split or tear apart violently. Oh, it's literary. That's why I've never heard it. I don't read. Uh. (laughs) Pakistan says it's ready to buy Russian oil. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Indian Express, Times of India, Express Tribune, Al Jazeera, and WIO News. Pakistan's finance minister Ishak Dar said Wednesday that his country was ready to buy Russian oil at prices equivalent to or lower than Indian rates amid Pakistan's severe economic crisis. According to Dar, who just returned from a visit to the U.S., Pakistan is actively considering purchasing Russian oil, while assuring that Islamabad would not turn to the Paris Club for debt rescheduling of $27 billion. As for buying discounted Russian oil, the finance minister said Islamabad wouldn't sign a contract on terms that are worse than India's. New Delhi has become Moscow's second largest oil customer after China, which is currently purchasing Russian oil at a substantial discount. At the All-Pakistan Chartered Accountants Conference in 2022, Dar said he also had informed U.S. State Department officials of Pakistan's plans. The finance minister's remarks come as Pakistan faces a severe economic crisis exacerbated by recent devastating floods. Economists are advising Islamabad to increase its foreign exchanges reserves and reduce its spending on imports, most of which are comprised of oil and gas purchases. Pakistan is the world's 35th largest importer of crude oil, importing $1.92 billion worth of crude in 2020 and 2021. Meanwhile, facing a possible food crisis, Islamabad is now also looking at buying Russian wheat, according to a recent statement by Pakistan's ambassador to Moscow, Shafkat Ali Khan. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from the Friday Times. Given the volatility and competition in the global energy market amid the Ukraine war, Pakistan should explore new ways to reduce its energy dependence and diversify its supply sources. Although it makes sense to enter into new energy partnerships, such as with Russia, Islamabad needs to explore its domestic energy potential and also focus on renewables. And Narrative B comes from the nation. Pakistani relations are not only growing with Russia. Closer Pakistani-China ties and U.S. security interests should be another reason for pragmatic re-engagement with the strategically important Asian country. Washington should not only intensify energy cooperation, but also provide market access for Pakistani exports and encourage American direct investment. It's a crucial time for Washington to deepen energy and other ties to Islamabad. 
And that narrative A is like the all-time let them eat cake. Hey, have you guys thought about renewables? <laughs> like, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I haven't. I hadn't heard of them. What is yeah. that? Oh, right. We forgot to turn on our fusion power plant. There you go. Okay, we're good. Oh, we're right. fine. Oh, yeah. I forgot. I have so much oil on Mars. Yeah. Oh, you have. Uh, you want to use it? You live in a desert. What about hydroelectric? You got that? No. Okay. Great. Thank you. France repatriates 40 children and 15 women from Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, France 24, Radio France International, Al Jazeera, and the South African Broadcast Corporation. On Thursday, France announced it completed a new operation to return 55 French nationals, 15 women and 40 children, from Kurdish-run camps in northeastern Syria. Once in France, the children were sent to childcare services and the women were transferred to judicial authorities. This is the latest move since France initiated its policy of bringing women and children back in July. Before July, France had prioritized national security over the return of detainees in Syria, many of whom are reportedly the wives and children of extremists, citing ISIS attacks like the one in Paris in 2015 that killed 132 people. The latest repatriation comes a week after an EU rights court condemned France for refusing to repatriate two women and their children. In September, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that France must re-examine the request. According to a Human Rights Watch, the French citizens were among more than 40,000 foreign nationals detained in Syria, most of them reportedly Iraqis. Estimates show that some French women and children remain after Thursday's operation. The move also comes as Western states consider the consequences of a potential deal between Turkey and Syria, which could see detainees transferred from Kurdish custody to Damascus. Thanks, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative on this story from Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. France was correct in its original decision not to repatriate these individuals. While they may be French nationals, they're also adults who chose to fight for ISIS, fully aware of the traitorous act they were committing. Western states who bend their knee to the demands of the human rights courts will only risk innocent lives to save jihadi traitors in foreign lands. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism. The most important question here is whether children should be punished for the crimes of their parents. And the answer is clearly no. While the adults who chose to leave and fight for a terrorist caliphate should still be tried and punished, their trial should be on Western soil so their children can be freed from their parents' sins. What's going on with the French Foreign Legion nowadays? You never hear about it anymore. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Are you familiar with the French Foreign Legion? You know no, what that is? I don't. So it was like a special French detachment of the army that like any desperate person, any bad person, any good person, any person without a country, any person on the run could join. Yeah. And you could join it and then you'd be a part of it. But then, of course, it's going to be horrible. And I, I imagine after a certain number of years, you would like get your crimes cleared or something. It was in like a lot of movies. Like the French Foreign Legion is like a thing that's floating out there. And I don't know if it really ever existed, but it definitely existed in a bunch of movies. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme has been in the French Foreign Legion in like every movie. Oh, yes. Of course. Okay, (laughs) now that makes sense. We should ask JCVD what what he's doing these days. I'd love to. Does he want to come on the show? Australia is committed to military cooperation with Indonesia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Denews, Dent Tooth, and CNN Breaking News. 
Australia's Department of Defense said Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's government would continue to provide military training, conduct joint exercises, and export weapons to Indonesia despite alleged human rights abuses by Jakarta in West Papua. The two countries have a long-standing military relationship, including joint training exercise between Australia's Special Forces, or SAS, and Indonesian Kapasas Special Forces. Their military relationship is credited with reducing the threat of armed groups. However, Indonesian armed forces remain under allegations of violating the rights of indigenous West Papuans, who have been fighting for independence for 50 years. A 2020 report released by the UN found that at least 50,000 people in West Papua had been displaced due to violence, citing excessive force, torture, and killings against indigenous people by the Indonesian police and military. Diplomatic ties between Australia and Indonesia almost broke in 2006 after Australia accepted 43 West Papuan refugees. This led to the Lombok Treaty, which strengthened commitments to cooperate on military, police, and counter-terrorism efforts. The treaty also recognizes Indonesia's sovereignty over Papua, a measure Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has promised to uphold. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start with an establishment-critical narrative coming from The Guardian. By selling weapons to Indonesia, the Australian government is unquestionably an accomplice to the murder and oppression of the West Papuans. Not only is Australia exporting weapons used to commit atrocities, the government actively tries to hide evidence of human rights violations so they don't look bad on the world stage. And the diplomat gives us a pro-establishment narrative. A strong military alliance between Australia and Indonesia is more important than ever, as China's rapid growth in the Pacific threatens to dismantle the strategic goals and partnerships with Western states. As two of the region's most powerful maritime forces, this is necessary for deterring encroachment by China. I just think that uh, this one of the sources for the facts, CNN Breaking News, is a really interesting thing because uh, in America we have a CNN that's very well known. This is not that, and it's, yeah, it's not, not a spinoff of that. It's just called CNN Breaking News, and uh, yeah, right. It is not the breaking news department of what Americans are familiar with, the cable news network as originated by Ted Turner. It is something else, and it's not clear what else it is. Yeah. So read carefully, everyone. In our final story today, an FDA panel votes to remove McKenna from the market. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NewsBud, and The Washington Post. On Wednesday, the FDA Advisory Committee voted 14 to 1 to remove the drug McKenna, which was expected to reduce the risk of preterm births from the market, while an appropriate confirmatory study is designed and conducted. After a three-day hearing, members of the FDA's Obstetrics, Reproductive, and Urologic Drugs Advisory Committee also voted 15 to 0 that a post-market trial didn't show any benefit to babies. McKenna was originally approved under the FDA's Accelerated Approval Program in 2011. A study in 2019 found that the drug didn't reduce premature births, and it also caused side effects including blood clots and depression. Covis Pharma, McKenna's manufacturer, along with some clinicians and patient groups, tried to convince the advisory committee that the drug might work in a more narrowly defined population, including high-risk black women. The committee wasn't swayed, and Covis would like to conduct a new study. Pulling a drug from the market is unusual, but the FDA typically follows the advice of its advisory committee, even though the recommendations are non-binding. 
Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Let's wrap up today's show with some narrative spins. Washington Post gives us narrative A. This drug's ineffectiveness exposes the flaws in the FDA's accelerated approval program. After approval, drug companies are required to conduct follow-up tests, but there's no timetable and no incentive for doing so. Drugs that don't work or might even cause harm are allowed to remain on the shelves for too long after approval. Kaiser Health News provides Narrative B. The FDA's accelerated approval track isn't perfect, but it's necessary. In some cases, it could take decades to learn if a drug is an effective cure, and many with terminal diseases don't have that type of time. With willing recipients of the drug on hand and the FDA enforcing necessary tests and requiring confirming data from companies, this program has been and should continue to be a positive one. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 21st, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.